0: Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve.
1: All right. Well, I just want to tell everybody thank you. I just want to pray that, God, I just uh, get out of the way. I'll take this next step and leave the results up to you. Um, I was asked to share my story, so I'm going to go there. I haven't been asked to share it for a long time, so I'm going to probably be a little thorough, but I do want to get into what saved me from the bondages of this disease my earliest memory is i was probably about three years old and um i remember every detail of a room i couldn't tell you any other part of that house but i remember the green walls i remember the curtains the layout and i was laying on a bed and um but i did i couldn't see the shadowy figure in front of me Um, and i was a happy kid i loved we had fun but i remember that day running out of that room Um, out of terror. Um, I did not want to be there. And what that did inside of me was that there was this, after that day, there was this uncomfortable feeling inside that I couldn't explain. I didn't know what it was. I was too young, but I just know it was like a pain. It's not like a, a pinch or a broken arm. It was just a pain inside me. And that started my journey to find a way to be free from that pain. One of the things that was prevalent in our home as are my parents were like from the 60s and they were kind of like hippies and they had pornography laid out everywhere. And so early on, by the time I was like four years old, something that I discovered is I opened those pages and looked at those uh, images in there. That pain was relieved a little bit. I didn't know why. Uh, my brothers would look at him and go out and play, but I stayed and I was just drinking those in on a daily basis. There was just something about them that was very refreshing for me. And um, I <clears throat> and my little brother were playing. We hadn't gone to school yet. And I remember we come into the bedroom and there was a full grown woman laying in my little kid's bed. And I thought that was strange. As I come around, I knew she wasn't sleeping, but she was pretending to be asleep. And as I came around that corner, and she had her upper portion of her body exposed. I I felt this inrush, like, <gasps> and it was just whatever I was seeing on those images. Of that paper didn't it paled in comparison to that inrush of what I saw there. And my disease was completely in that moment. That pain was completely gone. I was the well being um, was something beyond. And I'm not going to give you a drunk-a-log of the day by day, but. What I started discovering is, is I was getting older by six or seven. I was masturbating. It went it, the images and the masturbation was able to even medicate better, but nothing. I'd already now discovered the real. So I started acting out with different um, children in my area. Kids. I remember the first time a father, I was like five, come to our house all yelling and angry, and I'm like, well, what? You know, I couldn't. I didn't know because I thought everybody did this. Um, I remember by the time I was almost 10, the images and that just wasn't, uh, the the relief from them was getting less and less and less. And that's my experience with this disease is whatever I'm doing today, every time I use it, the effect is getting less to be able to relieve that. And I um, opened up my very first forum magazine where it had, a very descriptive and was definitely not healthy for a 10 year old boy that my mind was like a a fresh garden and these seeds were being planted. And I was introduced to the world of fantasy. And that was probably the most potent drug I had experienced to that point. It was just like, I mean, another breath, but with every breath I took like that and the relief was stronger and the relief could last, you know, a while. What came back, what I call the calling to react out, was always stronger. But I didn't really understand that until much later in the story here. Uh, my life began to, uh, by the time I was 12. I, I was very much inadequate, unworthy, alone, and afraid. And I wasn't like the other kids. And I just so much wanted to be like everybody else. I saw these you know, kids that had money. We were a very poor family. Um <clears throat> we had to go in and to get our lunch tickets because we couldn't afford to bring food. We were that poor. We had to go to the office and get these giant orange tickets and carry them through the school and go to the cafeteria and give them to the uh, cafeteria so that we could eat another meal. And it was embarrassing. We didn't have nice clothes. The other kids did, you know, we, we were the ones that they knew we were getting free lunches. And I was just, it was just, it was really a very shameful. And, and I was sort of angry but at 12 years old, I started to feel the effects of the addiction. While well, I didn't know what an addiction was, but I was now, instead of me using it to feel better, I could feel it starting to control me. Like it was, you know, it was running my life. And I thought, man, I just want to be like these other kids. I want to be confident. And so I made a, a, a commitment right then. I said, that's it. I'm done. I'm never going to act out. I'm not going to look at any more images And I probably made it two weeks, three weeks. But every day that went by, the pain was just getting worse and worse and worse. And I just thought, I'm just going to suffer through this. And to my dismay, one day I broke down and acted out. And I was just devastated because I didn't understand. You know, I was doing something that I didn't want to do. And that's the very nature of insanity is to make a decision to not do something and to continue to do it. Um, I then very shortly after found drugs and that was, uh, that was the new savior of mine. You know, all along I've, I had a relation, somebody had taken me to church. I felt God's presence. I loved God, but I could never, I was always trying to please God. I always wanted to be a good, a boy, you know, I always wanted to be good for God. And <clears throat> I found drugs. And for the first time, when I took those first hits of drugs, I was free again. I didn't have to use this. I I was free from the sexaholism because it kind of doled it down. But within a year, the drugs escalated and the sexaholism came back. And I was getting into a place where now we were going to parties all the time and really finding um, other uh, girls, you know, acting out with other women. And I never had a relationship. I could be with one woman girl one weekend and go and have sex with her and really like her. And the next weekend I could see her at a party again with somebody else and I would be okay. You know, I'll just find somebody else. I didn't have any clue about a connection, but it started getting out of control. We started um, really, um, we kind of were like a gang where we were getting into very dangerous territory at one point. we were some of the biggest drug dealers in our area, and with that came a lot of danger turfs and I know uh, at one point the drug was getting so much out of control that we had went with guns and ripped off one of the major drug dealers in our area he was a these were men we were kids you know I was not yet uh, I was sixteen maybe and um I remember I didn't go to school much you know in the by the time I was in the eleventh grade I went in for counseling to see, well, you've got a career day. And the lady looked at my thing. I'm supposed to have 17 credits. She goes, you've only got three credits. What are you doing? And they were all in a weightlifting gym, right? Because that was kind of my, we ran drugs in the school. I always showed up to go lift weights. We worked out all the time. I liked pottery class. Um, But I just didn't go to school because I was too busy trying, because I wasn't going to be a poor kid anymore. That was what I was not going to do. And we had stacks of money. We, we were getting we were getting the It was getting more dangerous and after we robbed that guy i remember i was in pottery class and i heard something i looked up outside and normally the men you see are like teachers they dressed up nice and this was a bad looking man and he had a 35 millimeter camera and he was pointing it right at me and when i looked up and saw him i heard it click and i looked away real quick and when i looked back he was gone about a day later somebody because we had connections all over came and said hey by the way I won't say his name. He's got a contract out on you guys' crew. You guys are done. And I, and I know that's true. I'm like, Oh dude. Cause they probably with the picture, the people that were in the house pretty much identified. Yep. That's them. And one of our guys, I mean, we've got tons of cocaine and quaaludes. He went to our normal hangout and we said, Hey, everybody keep it down low. And now it comes flooding into this building. And it wasn't very hard for them to find out who did it. So we all got together and, and drew straws, you know, if, uh, if this guy, if the first one of us that drops, this guy's next. So we got a big a crossbow with a big hunting tip arrow and we all drew straws. My little brother got the short straw and I said, no, he's not doing it. Um, I'm, I'm going to, he's not really one of us. He's just kind of tagging along. So I called that man the next day and I said, Hey bro, we're the guys that sold your safe. And I know you got a contract out on us and um, you can't get us all, but the first one of us that drops, I just want you to know that you're next. And about a day or so later, it came back, wanting us to know that no, nope, it's all good. We're going to just drop it. And, uh, but I still had to take different routes, walking home every day, you know, just knowing that one day I'm going to step out and one of those bad guys that I saw is going to be there. Um, but we went on like that for another, God, I don't know, maybe close to a, a year. And it was getting worse and more dangerous. And somebody said, hey, you know, the military, if you go in the military, You can have, there's discipline in the military. And I thought, well, that's what I need. Cause I I always wanted to be free from this. So I went down, I was 16. I drove down to the recruiter's office and said, man, I want to sign up. And he's how happy until he found out I was 16. He said, no, you have to be 17. So a few months later, three days after my 17th birthday, I went down there. I signed up and uh, I, uh, 18 days later, I was in the military flying out on a plane and i I really wanted to be I really wanted to have God in my life and so I asked this pastor guy I don't know he's to you know help me to pray for me before I go but I went into the military and everything was changing. I mean the first thing a guy asked me hey you gonna to go to church and I'm like yes and this is my new life. I had an intake officer lady that kept trying to decide whether I would be tried as an adult, and I kept saying, "No, no, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get free of this." And she told me, Dennis, this is your last chance. You, you know, I've been arrested so many times um, for some serious things." And so I went in, and when I, I went through boot camp. Didn't act out once, man. It was just like, I was in just such a state of, you know, uh, probably terror from them. Went to my, walked into my first room. There's like 400 rooms, probably 385 are all party rooms. And I walk in there's scripture on the wall. I said, thank you, God. Thank you. I was there for, uh, seven weeks. And this older gentleman, who was a high ranking guy, I, he said, Hey, how would you like to find out where your next base is? I said, yeah, I'd like that. So he picked me up, took me around and bought me a soda. And I felt really special. And then all of a sudden he asked if I want to go out someplace and I'm like, Ooh, something's not right. This is not right. I said, no, I want to go back to the barracks. I was scared. And then I recognized it, man. I mean, I'm a sexaholic. I know. And his whole demeanor changed. He goes, well, I found out for your base. And I thought, Whoa. And the sad part was I had like three months of complete freedom, man. I was going to church. I was loving God. He dropped me off and I went back into my barracks and I masturbated and it all come flooding back. My first base was in Hawaii. I went right down within two days and got drugs. I started acting out with people in the barracks. Um, It was just, I was back. And I spent the next four years exponentially increasing my disease. And all the while I I kept begging God, God, please, I don't want to do this. Help me, help me. Um, I got out, came back and, and found and met my wife and I thought, man, this is the woman of my dreams. This is going to solve my problem. Um, I got married and did well for a while. And for some reason beyond my, I couldn't believe it. I, I acted out and I thought, what am I doing? We're, we're, we're physically intimate. There's no reason I should need this. But the minute I did that, the disease was back heavy. I um, probably nine years in, you know, I was just doing pornography and masturbation. I had uh, come back her and my son were at a picnic. She left. I helped clean up from our work, driving back. A woman was hitchhiking. I hitchhiked a lot as a kid. And so I gave her a ride with no intentions of acting out. Winded up acting out with her. And I remember the absolute devastation thinking, what did I just do? What? I couldn't believe it. So I made a decision that I would never do that again, that I would never tell anybody about it. Um, But what came from that is I had like two weeks of just complete freedom from my disease. And I was at masturbating every day. I was you know, looking at porn, masturbating every day, and I had complete freedom. And I thought, this is it. Thank you, God, I've been free. But what I didn't realize is every boundary I crossed, when it came back and hit me, it was tenfold. I had never been eaten up by the disease like it did when that came back. And I was back out driving around looking for them. And then I spent the next 20 years um, doing that picking up prostitutes and going to massage parlors and putting ads online all the while begging God I eventually um, just there just wasn't enough and it kept you know the relief was getting less and less and less and I remember I found myself in way into a place once and I'm not seeing sex attracted and <clears throat> winded up acting out with a, a guy and it made me sick to the point where when I walked out, I puked and, and I was just like, what are you doing?" And just, the disease was just getting more constricting. And, um, I remember when I left there, I, I promised God, God, I promise you I'll never do that again. Never do that again. And within a week I was driving back there begging me, Dennis, you promise God, you promise. And I'm God, please help me here. Help me. As I drove back there and stepped over the place that I had puked and went back in. And that just continued. My life was a wreck. Um, and I'm just going to fast forward now because I want to talk about the relief that I got. Um, my, I was asked, well, how many actual sexual contacts do you think? I think in my life, and this is not an exaggeration, probably about 3,000 people I have acted out with. Um, I couldn't stop. There was at least two to three or four people a week for years and years and years. You know, and I'm not same-sex attracted. And the thing with this disease is it's like eating out of a plate of vomit that you don't want to do. And after a while, you can sort of stomach it. And then you look at that next plate and like, oh, I'd never go to that. And then when this plate doesn't work anymore, you go, I go to that. And it's, I can stomach it. Then it gets to a point where eh, it's not too bad. Then it gets to a point where I have a desire for it. That's how the disease progressed. But the disease progressed to a place when I was 52 that I I absolutely could not get relief anymore. I mean, I could act out and act out with different people. And the last person I acted out with, I was heading back up to put another ad on. And I took a bunch of pain pills and drunk a bunch of alcohol and, and I was in my office, like I'm a professional in an office where people are working and I'm acting out in my office and I'm going back, boarding it up and taking so much drugs and alcohol because I just wanted oblivion. I didn't want to do this anymore. And so I called my pastor and said, dude, I'm no good for nobody. I, I didn't want to die, but I just didn't want to live because I, I couldn't take the pain no more. So I heard about, uh, he said, well, Dennis, go to this guy that talked to a counselor. He said, dude, you're a sexaholic. And I'm like, thank you. I know that. He said, call this man. And this man said, be at this meeting at 630 in the morning. And I was willing to do, I okay, show up. And we start reading through the white book and everything they're saying is like, hey, that's me. I've never met anybody like me. And they said to get a sponsor. So that first day I got a sponsor. We went and spent three hours at a restaurant. He laid out. You're going to slide out of bed every morning. You're going to do these readings. You're going to call two guys a day. You're going to do this, that, and the other. You're going to work on your step work. And I did everything he said every day. And that, if anybody is on here that is coming into this program, get a sponsor that has a sponsor that's worked the steps through the big book and do everything they say. Some things I didn't like, I didn't care. I just did it. And I started to get free. I had that pink cloud for almost eight months where I was just like on a high and then it crashed. But the first thing that I had to learn to do, I remember on day four, I was writing out some early abuse. And I felt that like, oh, and every time I felt that I don't care if I'm 15 minutes from picking my family up to go on a camping trip, you know, to go pick up a prostitute, I had to go pick up the prostitute first. And I'm like, oh, you're going to be so sad. And when that hit, I thought that compulsion was back. And I prayed the prayer my sponsor gave me. And it was like a wind hit me and I just felt relief. And in that moment, I've never felt relief. I said, I don't ever have to do this again. And so, I worked this program. I went to meetings every day. I, I started doing. I started doing coffee first. Man, I'd show up there early. And even one guy goes because I'm going seven days a week. Donna, not say hey, on Fridays, can you just not do the coffee all? Because I've always done the coffee. Hey, yeah, go ahead. But I would wait. You know, six twenty-five. He's not there. I'm making the coffee. Then I started into different service positions, and that was keeping me just completely free. But the biggest thing was when I would feel a temptation, I was at a, why in my road? And I would say in that moment, when the temptation come, if I would immediately turn to God, even if I didn't, even if I wanted to drink that, that quiet dying upward, I would go to God immediately and his presence would flood in. I would feel the comfort and peace of his relief. And then I would, um, um, his love and his joy would flood in and I think he would change Like I don't even really want this. So I surrendered over and over and over. And as I kept surrendering, the temptations were getting further and further apart. And that was the obsession being broken. And the further they got, the weaker they got. But the minute I would pause, if I didn't go to God immediately, like I'm talking one second and I paused, I would take the drink and those temptations would start coming back the other way. Thank God since 2014, I've had some close calls. We don't have time to tell you some of the crazy close calls that I've done, but I've always reached out before I went off the deep end. And one of them, my sponsee, so I was telling him, Hey, by the way, I'm, I'm leaving the program. He's like, dude, did you go to God yet? I'm like, no, I didn't even cross my mind. I was in such insanity. I pulled my truck over. I prayed and I was back like that. Like, Oh, what am I doing? So <clears throat> I just want to say that, and I don't know how much time I have left, but I do want to just go through really quick, you know, steps one and two, I I knew I was powerless and there was no doubt about it. I have, I believed in a higher power and I believed that I had taken my third step. Well, I've already turned my will and my life over to the care of God. That's not true. I didn't even know what that meant. Um, It wasn't that I didn't have a lack of trust or a lack of faith. That wasn't the problem. The problem was a lack of connection to the power. So I I, on the bottom of page 63, it says here, and I do this with all my sponsees, you know, we we made a decision to turn my will and my life, my thinking and my actions over to the care of God means God's going to care for me. And it tells me after I I take that step, because in the third step on page 60, this is what the real disease is. Here it is on page sixty. The first requirement is that we be convinced. Look that up. means there's no doubt, fully concede that any life run on self-will. That's my disease. It has nothing to do with the other stuff. It's self-will. can hardly be a success. It says, on that basis, we are almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though our motives are good. That's my experience. When I'm in self, I'm in collision with everything around me. I'm in fear. I'm being dishonest. I'm yeah, it's crazy. So when we get up from taking our third step with a sponsee, it says on the bottom of 63, next. So we already have our stuff there ready to go right into the fourth step. Next, or at once, whatever sooner. Next, we launched out on a course of vigorous action, the first step of which is being a personal house cleaning. On the top of page 64, it's so important to see why if people are constantly slipping, this may be the problem which many of us had never attempted. Right here, it says, though our decision, which was to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God, was a vital and crucial step and underlined, it could have little permanent effect. If I'm not staying sober, it's because of that, because it's little permanent effect, unless at once, followed by strenuous effort to be faced and to be rid of the things in ourselves, which had been blocking us. And you got to ask, blocking me from what? That's exactly why I'm acting out. It's blocking me from that power. Our lust was but a symptom. It didn't have nothing to do with lust. So we had to get down to causes and conditions. And then we work steps four through nine, the spiritual program of action that removes all those blockers. All that prayer work that we do is God is showing us, direct my attention to what you would have me be. Right. He's showing me, you know, how would I have reacted if God was in my life? And those things that he's given me, those positive attributes, when I'm connected to power, living in God centered love, that's what my life is just like that. So it, it goes on to say that <clears throat> it, remember back on the when I'm in self will, I'm always in closing with something or somebody here on page 84. It says, and we have ceased fighting anything or anyone. That's my experience. When I'm connected, I don't have time to go through the 10th step. It's what's, you know, four through nine removes the blockers connects me to that power. 10 keeps me. It's a maintenance step so that I don't let those blockers come back in when I'm enjoying God fully and I'm completely surrendered. I have peace and serenity. My body doesn't wrench out anymore. I have peace and serenity. Acceptance is the gift of that connection. Um, when I, what I see, what it says right here that, um, uh, if tempted, we recoil from it as from a hot flame. If I'm being tempted, I'm so far back down the the trail that I'm, that I'm suffering. So when I'm in, in God-centered love and some fear comes in or a resentment towards somebody comes and I don't deal with that directly, I go right back into self, self shows up, starts running around trying to Starts trying to take care of me, and I know my time's up, so I'll close out here. Starts trying to take care of me, and then I'm starting going back in collision. Next thing I know, I'm starting to be tempted. And then I'm starting to lust again, and I'm like, "Well, how did I get here?" So when I leave the comfort of God being in control, and I go back into the chaos, the insanity of self. That's what I recoil from. And I get to continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. I get to spot those. Those are spot the thought. Those start out as thoughts, just like a temptation. So what I now in my recovery is I'm watching to see if self is reemerging. But the the biggest goal in this program is working with another sexaholic. And this is the last thing I'll close with, because right here, it tells you on page 14, It's so clear why this is so important. It says this right here that uh, my friend, this is Bill W. speaking, and uh, my friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. Particularly, was it imperative to work with others as he had worked with me? Because faith without works was dead, he said, and how appallingly true for the sexaholic. For if a sexaholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life, through work and self-sacrifice for others. And that's it right there. We have to we have to help others. He could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. And to this day, if I leave a resentment unattended or I feel some fear, I will not be able to survive those certain trials and low spots that I'm gonna be hitting. So I'll be glad to answer questions, but um, that's, I get to stay connected to God. That's my only goal. That's how I manage. I don't manage this disease. I just, it's a, I have a daily reprieve contingent upon the maintenance of my spiritual condition. Can't do nothing about my spiritual condition, but I can do the maintenance by doing my step 10, doing my nightly inventory and working with others. And with that, I'll pass.
2: Two questions. I'm just going to start. Are you a sexaholic? The first question I have is... um, when you said that immediately you have to go to God when you have a fantasy that comes into your head, I'm struggling with that because my brain tells me what's the big deal. It's only a little bit of a fantasy. Yeah. Like I deserve that high. I deserve yeah. that. Like, I'm not going to do anything about it. But so what do you tell your brain with that? And the second question is after that is that you said that you were um, thinking to leave the program. What do you tell your brain? Like, maybe I graduated. Maybe I don't really need this anymore. Maybe I'm not really an addict or all that. So that that's what I have. Yeah.
1: Good stuff. Well, acting out is not the lust. Just want you to know that, right? You know, everybody thinks, well, we have to have progressive victory over lust. It's the acting out. You know, that's what we determine whether we're sober or not sober. Sober is not well because so sobriety is now. I don't have my medication to um, relieve the pain of being disconnected from the power. So what you're describing is the lust. Is the thoughts, the second looks, I'm still drinking. Now, I don't think you lose your sobriety over that, but I think you've got to be suffering horribly bad from it. Um, I, there was no way, I just was in the game for years of surrender, 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 but still drinking. Um but doing well, I wasn't acting out. I wasn't picking up. Pro- I wasn't doing any of that stuff. But the problem is I wasn't free. It says on page um, 85 that I had been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. I had not even sworn off and said the problem had been removed. The problem was never the lust, the thinking, the all that. The, the problem was always uh, a lack of power. On page 45, it says, lack of power. This was my dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves. So that's exactly what this book is about. It, it its main object will enable me to connect to a power. Yep. That Guys, will,
2: please mute yourselves. Go ahead.
1: Go ahead. Will ca- connect me to that power. So until I really um, connected to that power fully and surrendered completely that lust went away but i have to remember like i may see like my wife's in the back and there's somebody out in the front yard there across the street you know and i and i see that and i think dennis you can't have both i i can't have that thought and my wife i can't have that thought and be connected to that power if i'm having that thought i'm already so far down it's the thought is because i'm holding on to some resentment or holding on to some fear has nothing. That's just the medication that I'm trying to medicate the disconnection from my, from that power. So I think the first thing to do, and this is a progress progressive. It's like, you know, there's, is you have to understand that if a thought comes to mind or I see something and I entertain that I'm drinking, the poison's going inside of me and I'm going to be suffering and I'm going to have to either act out, or suffer through and let it dissipate. And that's a painful process. I don't experience that anymore. I see Harvey a. talk about it all the time. And I thought, there's no, I don't believe there's a place where I won't entertain thoughts and won't be. And that's not true. I've experienced it. I am in a place of neutrality, safe and protected. It's true. Thank it's- you. Uh,
3: first and foremost, I just want to say that um, I've just recently uh, started to know Dennis. I go to his... Uh, meetings in the mornings and uh I thought why am i resonating with this guy well he's a big book monster that's my uh blueprint for progress he knows the book so well and uh but I was talking to a friend of mine today and we were saying you oh, know yeah let's go to this meeting and support Dennis and hear him hear his story now that I've heard his story I get the connection too even more so that that you know he you shared about uh Oh well, the hippie parents, and I, I know that I happen to know that you came from Santa Cruz. I'm a Long Beach dude, so that there's that. And uh, but no, it's the feelings behind all of this too. It really doesn't matter so much about mm-hmm. our individual stories. What I've come to learn after working these tw- twelve steps for a time now is there's more similarities with people than there are differences.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, there's an expression that they say. That you know, some of us slept on Park Avenue, some of us slept on park benches, but yep. the only thing, the one thing it says in the book that we all have in common is the desire to control and enjoy our drinking or lust. So, uh, boy, I'm on fire now after listening to your pitch, brother. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Mochi. I love you, brother. I've enjoyed getting a fellowship with you. Thank you so much.
3: Thanks for sharing your story,
4: and I have a question for you. This is about. Helping Others. Uh, So what is, you know, because it says very clearly in the big book that helping others, meaning sponsoring others, is a very crucial part of recovery. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Of course, our founders, Bill W. and Bob, Dr. Bob, started sponsoring immediately. There is a story in the AA Big Book of a guy who started sponsoring after 15 days My AA sponsor, he was an AA guy, though I am a sexaholic. He told me there is only one criteria for helping others. You have a sponsor and you have gone through the steps and you are having some spiritual experience. That's the only criterion. Yet, many times in the SA meetings, I find the criterion to be one year of sobriety. Now, how is someone who is going to wait for one year sobriety Many times, not going to get a chance to help others, and that might end up becoming the reason for them to actually act. Out. So that—that that is some a question that I deal with when I am sponsoring others. So I wanted to know if you have a take on that.
1: Oh, that's a good. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I know for me, when I sponsor guys, um, one thing first off is that I have to know that a I'm nobody's solution, and I don't have any power. So. I, there's nothing I can say to help a guy get sober. And there's nothing I can say to cause a guy to lose his sobriety. The, the only reason I'm sponsoring is so I stay sober. Um, but like with my sponsors, you'll see them, they'll kind of be working. It's usually by time they're through their fourth step with a resentment inventory. They're not even through their ninth step yet, but they, everything starts changing. in them. they start having the spiritual experience and everybody in the room's looking at them like, man, everything that's coming out of this guy's mouth is, and I hear it in your shares, Mike. Man, I mean, I want what you got. So, when sometimes I'll see a newcomer come in, my sponsor will share and I can just see it. It's just like, wow, I want what that guy's got, right? Well, he gets up to walk away and the newcomer runs to him. And I think, oh, that newcomer is going to ask him to sponsor him. They'll turn and they'll walk to me and say, hey, Dennis. And I'll say, yes. I go, well, what do you mean? Yes. Go ahead. And he goes, well, he asked me if I should sponsor him, if I should be a sponsor. I said, absolutely, you're ready. So I think when people start asking because you have something they want, it's time to start sponsoring. Now, there's a lot of people that will say differently. I think listen to your sponsor. If your sponsor says something different than I'm saying here today, your sponsor is right and listen to him. But that's what I do is um, when it starts pouring out of them, they've got something that somebody wants. I think that's God doing that. That's just what I, I can't say that's right or wrong, though. That's what we do.
5: Thanks.
4: Thanks. thanks for the thank sex you, Dennis.
5: Gabrielle sexaholic. Dennis, first of all, thank you so much for your share. Really, really appreciated it. Number two is I love your t-shirt. You got to tell me where you got it from.
1: Hey, somebody <laughs> that went to the uh, Israel conference brought that back for me. Shalom, y'all. <laughs> I didn't know you could awesome. see that.
5: Um, so really like two questions I have, um, one is that I'm trying to work my steps one, two, and three every single morning and throughout the day when I feel like I need to, I kind of feel like I'm slacking off a little bit. Just want to really hear your like ESH and how to really implement steps one, two, and three, like the strongest way into my life that I'll feel a very, very good connection with God. And number two is I am up to step four with my sponsor. Good. And I feel like I'm procrastinating an insane amount. I have a crazy yeah. fear. I'm just very scared to even start with my step four. Mm. I want to just hear some hope on like how I could, you know, start that.
1: Well, I guess first off, I'll just talk about the slacking because, you know, if we rest on our laurels, we're in trouble if we do. It's true for me. And I think In order for somebody to really progress and in this program, we have to slack off at times to see that the disease is still right there. Even if, you know, if I slack off, man, I start just, you know, I start getting emotionally unsober. I start looking at everybody. Um, I have a little thing in my book because I had an old timer tell me this. You know, I start thinking it's all them, that they're the problem. So I always, it's wrote it in my book. It's not them. When I start believing it's them again, then I know I'm in trouble. I'm back into having collisions. So um I think that slacking off that the pain of this disease will mangle is pretty bad. And, and that'll take that kind of takes care of itself. It's just a discipline. It's like if a guy is a diabetic, he's got to manage his disease. He's got to certain things he's got to do every day. If he decides, eh, I'm just not gonna take my insulin today, well, that's fine. But after a couple of days, he's gonna start getting sick. When we get to a place and it's the purpose of why we're doing it. When, when you do your fourth step, you're going to be, everything's going to be different. I promise you, it's beautiful. You're going to want to be in that place of neutrality and, and resting on my laurels. I drop out of that. And I don't want to be there to please God. I want to be there to have God. You know, it's like he's get I get his greatest gift, which is himself. So, Keep doing your step work. It's the most important thing. And I can't remember the second question.
5: That was uh just with the fourth step that I'm uh, I'm yeah, very, dude, very let I, me I tell fear. you something.
1: The fourth step is one of the most beautiful steps. There's prayer work we get out of it. It that's what helps me if I get a resentment to know how to deal with it. These resentments get they're like like it said, those things that are blocking us. You're starting into the process of getting those things out that are blocking you. You're going to be connected with God like you can't even imagine. And it won't be something that you do. It'll just be a natural process of working these steps. Get through your four-step. I mean, heres I'll just say this last thing. Make a date with you, your step-working God. Go find a a creek or someplace that's really cool that's solitude. And and go and, and bring your favorite drink. And say, okay, God, let's do this. Because I always pray that God does my step work for me. I just show up in my pen. I do what my sponsor tells me. And I let God come. And anytime you're experiencing God in you and through you, man, life is it's it's incredible. So make a date with you and your book and God and your favorite drink and go do your four-step. It's really, really cool.
3: Hi, Hansi, Thank you, Dennis. Uh, I really appreciated that. Um, my question for you is that there's a lot of the, the concepts and for me um a very difficult getting better shout out to matt um is my step two and three just i recently discovered my new god that he loves me but yes. just the just the surrender and surrender life the term surrender just just to, I guess the term to connection just keep on connecting how do i how do i build that and i guess maintain it make it a regular a regular part of my life that's that's yeah. what i struggle with what would you say that's your yes h well, the
1: the the ego does not want to go quietly i want to be in control i want and that's the hardest part it says on page 44 it says to be doomed to a sexaholic death or to live on a spiritual basis are not always easy alternatives to face i'm thinking Sounds like an easy alternative to me. I'll, sp- I'll take the spiritual basis. What that means is death of ego means I got to keep surrendering. Um, I do that. I start out by following my sponsor's suggestions, doing everything he says. That's a first part of surrendering. And then eventually I turn that over to God. And it, it boils down to, and we don't have time today to really go into depth, but it boils down to how do I know if I'm back in control because I have an expectation? Usually it's some fear comes in. So I have an expectation of somebody or something. That expectation lets me know that I'm in trouble because an expectation is a resentment that is forming. And really what it is is a demand because I'm running things. I want things, I need things to be certain ways so I can be okay and I need to let go of that. So if I have an expectation or if I have a resentment, that's even more deadly. I need to pray for that person that I'm resenting. So if you have somebody in your life and this is where the fourth step and the 10th step come in. Pray for that person until you feel nothing but peace, love, and compassion, never to be brought up against them again, to be charged against them again, that you can be of complete, um, like, let it go. Then you're at peace. So it's right. tough because I'm a control freak and, and uh, Jim will tell you that. And Daniel will tell you, know. you that. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's just our, that's our nature. That's why, you know, but I think the more that we get to taste that sweetness of complete surrender, the more we want it. But gotcha. fear will take us right out. So that's about the closest. Thank you.
6: Hi, my name is Shmuel. I'm a sex addict.
1: Hi, Shmuel.
6: Um, Dennis, thank you very much. I appreciate your share. Very, very, um, very inspiring. And you said it with such uh, calmness. With um, <laughs> you know, it's really a crazy story. Um, I really don't um, relate in that aspect. I have a different MO of relationships. That's connection with people as opposed to going out one night and all that. So I'm coming off with uh, 65 days of sobriety. Now, Like the, for me, here's the question. Um, I was coming off with a relationship while I was married with somebody. And I, I knew if I was going to continue like either my wife or this girl. I can't get both. And I want to, I I wanted my wife because I wanted this work out, but I felt that I was um, I I didn't from what I'm hearing from you was you had enough. You felt like I can't do this no more. I can't. I don't I had enough from going from one plate to the next plate. The next plate was worse. You just couldn't do it anymore. For me, I didn't have that. And I feel like I cut myself short. I I, I still, I want to hold on to it. I don't have enough sobriety. I'm able to feel like, oh, this is awesome. And I feel like I can't, for sure I can't do it because I'm not going to have, I'm not going to have my family and stuff, but like, I still feel like in the back of my head, Hey, um, I didn't really enjoy what I could have done.
1: Yeah. Well. Oh man, I wish that you know intimacy is into me. You see, and when lust isn't present and you're able to see into your wife, where the intimacy and the spiritual connection between you two becomes it'll be way sweeter than any type of physical activity you can ever experience. Um, it's it's a, it has to be a connection with God first and spiritual connection with her. I, I, to be honest with you, I don't have much experience with having like a love relationship. I mean, all these people, I, I never knew their names. I ne- never connected them. I didn't have any feelings. It was always just to get my next fix. So, And I know there's guys in our program that, that have affairs and they fall in love. And I don't have that experience, so I don't know how to share. I can't even imagine that. Um, I, I think that would be just so hard. Um, but, yeah, I would never – so I, I really can't answer that other than I know when you – connect to that power and you have intimacy with your wife, not physical, but true intimacy, spiritual connection, man, you'll see the, the, you know, the expressions on her face, you'll hold her hands. You'll want to be with her. Everything changes. It's still about wanting, you know, that's, that's the disease is wanting more wanting something that God wouldn't have for me. That's lust. And, you know, it's to sacrifice that, Do I trust that God's going to give me something better than that? And I don't. But when I finally was able to let go just out of being mangled by it, man, I wish I would let go a long time ago because it's so much better if, if you really find when you connected that power and have God in your life and flowing through you, helping others and, you know, the relationship with your wife. Yeah, you would. It's better. But until you experience it, it's hard to believe that, well, you're asking me to give this up. For something that I don't, I don't, I don't, God wasn't better than my lust. When I first came in, I told God that I said, God, I love you, but I'm choosing my lust still. And you know, when I would take that second look and I have to say, Dennis, you love your lust more than God. It's like, no, God, you're not better than my lust. And God said, thank you for being honest. Let me show you now. And then when he showed me, I was like, Whoa. And it, and it didn't come all at once. It came in as I stayed in that connected state to him longer and I can drop out tomorrow if I, you know, get wound up about something. But I have to continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And that nightly inventory is gold. If I'm not doing it, because that helps me see it. So, I wish I had a better answer for you, brother.
5: Hi, Dennis. Uh, yes, I'm Sean, I'm Sean sexaholic. That was hey, a great Sean. talk. Uh, very uh,
3: perfect for what I need to hear now. I just have something simple. Can I just see that book once more?
1: Um that's like, my big book. okay, it's not them because that was my problem. Uh,
3: let me see the, the the side of it. It's like, okay, wow, that's used.
1: Okay oh, I, just, yeah. I
3: just want to see a used book like a used book, oh, book. yeah okay. I yeah, okay.
1: yeah okay. I, I use my bigger one now so yeah <laughs> that's yeah it's and I'll just say one last thing about that. I could memorize it. I can know every single page, but when I have a resentment, If I don't do the instructions inside, it does me no good. You could take somebody that doesn't know anything in this big book and they continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And when these crop up, they pray at once for God to remove them. They talk to somebody immediately and make amends quickly if they've harmed anybody. And then they resolutely turn their thoughts to someone they can help. If they will do that, it doesn't matter how much I know. If I don't do that, it it doesn't do anything for me. It's the actions and follow the instructions that makes everything change. And I know we're out of time Pass.
3: Thank you. Hi, Dennis. My name is Yitzhak. I really appreciate your share. Thank you. Um, my question is,
6: um, I'm in the program for three years and I've been sober for a little less than two years.
4: Okay. And
6: I have, I had a lot of spiritual experiences mm-hmm. that you described. And I relate a lot to what you're saying, the flow and the connection. But yeah. how do you, how do you maintain how do you, Grow that, you know. Once that you've worked your step, I worked my step for. You know, I work. I try to work on resentments on a regular basis, but I don't necessarily have resentments every day. How do you grow that 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 powerful relationship with God yeah, on a daily that, basis?
1: Well, and I, I guess I would ask: Are you currently sponsoring people? I am. Okay, beautiful. It's this simple, and I think this is one of the most missed parts of the big book is do you do a nightly inventory off of page 86 every night I and that to I somebody. don't do them
6: every night but I do them
1: okay um I think for me every morning I slide out of bed and I do some prayer work I do it takes about five minutes I love the prayer work I used to you know didn't think rote prayer was good um but I you know I, I start out thanking God for his power. I used to say, God, I'm I'm powerless. I need your power. I say, no, it's like, thank you for your power. I do my third step prayer. I do my seven-step prayer. I pray that um, God direct my thinking today, may it, that it would be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, and self-seeking motives. God, show me the way of patience, tolerance, kindliness, and love. And thank you for your power that I may be able to continue to watch. And I do my 10th step prayer. I do my 11th step prayer. I pray, God, uh, I pray for the knowledge of your will today and the power to carry that out. So I do my prayers every morning. I just do two prayers at night before I go to bed. But it says when we retire at night, when we constructively, not destructively, I have a list of those questions I do every night. Um, because what that does is the little things um, when it asks you know, was I kind and loving toward all that's inwardly too. I may not said nothing to nobody, but I get to tell another human being. Yeah. I wasn't kind and loving toward everybody. Um, I get to answer these questions every night. And what it does is the next day as I'm going through my day, you know, sometimes my wife and I'll joke. It's like, you know, we're watching some game show and I, and I, I'm being, you know, sarcastic towards somebody. I'm like, ah, I got to put that on my, my darn thing tonight. So you start really becoming aware of, of your daily walk. And that's what, that's what really helps is when we do that every single night, we, you know, uh, the one that especially says, um, have we kept something to ourselves, which should be discussed with another person at once. We write secrets by that. Do I have anything that's secrets? And I believe that. And when I detect something that I take care of it immediately, that I actually do pray at once for God to remove it. I do talk to somebody or at least send a text. Um, And lastly, I'm very aware, am I trading my connection for something else? I just came off a major surgery and I got to the point where I quit using the pain pills a few days ago, like five or four or five days ago, because I noticed that all I was doing was watching Netflix and eating food. You know, and I'm like, ah, and those pain pills, I was like starting to enjoy that. And I said, man, I'm losing my connection here. And the first way it showed up was, is I started losing my emotional sobriety. Like, like my wife was the problem. And I had to remember, no, she's not the problem. And so then I had to really go back full time to where I'm practicing every day, my program, working with people, being of service. I think being a service is important and, and shim. I do a lot of service with shim. You know, we're always working, and I don't know how much less I could do and still have that, but I don't want to find that out. So that's my kind of thoughts on that. But it, it, right off the bat, if you're doing sponsor work, if you're sponsoring, then 10 and 11, that nightly inventory, you know, and then on awakening, you know, how do I know when I need to connect to God? Because I'm disturbed. And the question is when I'm disturbed, I pause at, you know, or I'm agitated or I'm no, no. The question is, am I willing to surrender that disturbance? And if I'm in self, I'm not, I want to go into my comfortable place of self pity. I want to, you know, isolate, but am I going to take the action to surrender it and call somebody? That's the key right there. Am I going to hold on to something? Or am I going to let go? And the big one is, is, The four absolutes in the Oxford group is absolute unselfishness, which goes above selfishness, absolute honesty. I'm saying I can't even be any type of dishonest. I have to be a hundred percent honest. If I'm being dishonest or just a little, then I'm not trusting God. The big one is above resentment is absolute purity, not sexual purity of heart. Have I disconnected from somebody, I need to get back connected to that person. And that's going to take God to do that. And the last one is absolute love that I put above the fear of those four. Because when I'm in connected to that power, there's an absence of fear. So, but I I did a 10th step recording a while back, a couple probably, but it kind of goes into that in more depth. Pass
2: next dennis i have a question my question is are you sexaholic representing the single fellowship here in um our recovery we think god built up a big crowd in that um pickup two-fold question one is you know if i see a woman i could tell my brain i'm not gonna have sex with her anyway she's a random woman she's someone's mother she's someone's daughter right so um now if I get engaged to someone or I'm looking into her and I enjoy her, et cetera, her presence. So what do I tell my brain now? Like if I get engaged to the person, so I'm planning to have sex with her. So like, is that fantasy permissible? I know it's theoretically not, but what do I tell my brain? And the second question in that is my brain says like, you know, if I get so triggered by seeing a beautiful woman or chatting with a woman for 15 minutes, now let alone in our circles we go on a date in the Jewish Orthodox for two to three hours, and that's the normal um, that's the normal time period. I have this tremendous fear of like God not being able to keep me sexually sober throughout the hype of engagement or dating. How do I address that? And what are your thoughts?
1: Well, that's a great place to practice your program right there. Cause a single guy, and I don't, I can't talk about dating, but once you get married, you're going to have to work your program as though you just stepped into it. Cause here's the deal. Here's the four things I ask myself. First off, am I experiencing intimacy with my wife with no lust there? And say we've been out, we've had fun. She's being kind of flirty. We go back home and she, I'm thinking, you know, and she was wanting to be physically intimate and then she decides no. If that's not okay with me, then sex isn't optional. Sex has to be optional. So I get to ask myself if we've had this wonderful date and we're really, we come home and I ask myself four things if we're going to be physically intimate. Do I feel like I need this? If I feel like I need it, I can't have it. I have to know. Sex is optional. I can go without sex the rest of my life. So I feel like, do I feel like I need it? Second, two are I put them together. Is do I am I wanting this to relieve stress or find comfort? That's still lust. And the and and the problem is, is those three right there will never be enough. If I'm using her that way, I could go pick up prostitutes and masturbate and go through the whole thing. It'll never be enough. The last and final one: Am I wanting to have sex with her to have a connection? that's the most deadly because I have to have my connection with God and my spiritual connection with her. Then I don't, I'm not needing it for connection. So if we're going, and I've learned this the hard way. And if any one of those four are true and we're physically intimate, the next day we're not fighting, but we're separated. We're just kind of irritated and she's doing her thing. and, And there's a separation. There's a chasm between us. But if we're having a great date and we come home and we decide we're going to be physically intimate um and I don't feel like I need it. Eh, it's okay, we don't have to. You know, we're just I mean join, let's just hang out. I'm not I'm not wanting to relieve stress or find comfort or have a connection cuz I already have it and then we're physically intimate. Boy, the next day we're just bonded together. Our spiritual connection is together. If we do it where there is there, the spiritual connection is broken. But if it's already connected and we're physically intimate, we can't driving the car together without holding hands we can't walk in a park without holding hands or snuggling up against each other um when something with any lust is present we can't stand to be around each we don't dislike each other but i'm not present so if i ask my wife would you like to be intimate physically intimate and she says no and i'm not okay with that it really wasn't a request it was a demand Because I'm not okay with it. So that's where me getting to practice to see, do I have an expectation here? And expectations are deadly. They're deadly. And that's where I know I'm back in self. And sometimes I get sick and I feel like I need sex. And I'm like, whoa, this is not good. Because the reason it's not good is because my wife will never be enough in that type of environment. Nothing is enough. And I don't want to go back to trying to, feed on three or four people a week, because that's not enough. And I've been free from January 29, 2014. I don't, I haven't experienced that. I don't, it scares me to death to think that that compulsion that can come back on me. It hasn't. But I know playing that game, it's like, you know, I don't need sex. You don't need sex. If your mind is thinking about now, you got young guys. I mean, they have their their hormones, I, I, I'm 59 years old. But, you know, young guys that have hormones, I don't know what they do about that. Um, but I do know that when they finally meet that woman, that I hope that they have enough program to really focus on the intimacy, into me you see, of their hearts. That's what I hope. Because then it's going to be beautiful. And the truth is, most guys that are lusting, their wives don't want anything to do with them. They're always like, oh, she never wants to have sex. But when you're not lusting and you're interested in intimacy, her heart, they want to give themselves to you because they want that spiritual bonding too. But they don't want to be used like a prostitute. And really, if you have lust in your heart, you're using her like, it's just like masturbating. She's just another way for you to have an orgasm. And that's just, it's unfortunate because it's, I mean, but I don't think that any, of us can get, especially this new guy getting into marriage is not going to have to work through that process and, and, you know, find somebody that's been through that and help them along the way to go. Yep. Yeah, that's like, dude, man, I'm just, you know, I'm angry at her because she won't have, yeah, it's like, well, then you have an expectation pass.
3: Hi, it's your talk again. Dennis, can you
5: discuss more about intimacy with your wife? Because I'm I'm having a lot of trouble with that.
1: It, Brother, it all comes, honestly, if I'm in self, it's impossible to have intimacy with my wife other than, you know, if I'm in self, I'm being selfish. It's all about me. I have expectations because when I'm in self, self is like self is caring for me now instead of God caring for me. So self is running around trying to take care of me. That's the insanity I've lived my whole life. When self is deflated, I heard I heard a good thing. It's like a dog sitting on the couch. And when God is in control, I'm living in God-centered love, then I'm in acceptance of what is. If we're going to be physical intimate, if we're not, it's okay. Sex is optional. But the minute I go back into self because of some fear or resentment, like that dog raises his ear and self is like jumping up going, I'm ready to take care of you again. I'm like, no, no, no. Whoa. Just stay there. Let me do some prayer work here because I definitely don't want you to get up and start running around creating chaos. So man, relationships are, are hard for the sexaholic. And I think for me, what's been helpful is, is having counseling. Counseling doesn't have to do anything with with the 12-step program. Like when I, when I bring guys to the 12 steps, I'm don't be their counselor. I say you need to find a counselor which will help in childhood trauma and some other things like that. But there's a great story on, I think it's page 133 of the white book that says, I'm the key. You know, the guy is him and his wife are just like at odds. He goes fishing and coming back. He had this, he had a change of it, of his expectation. And I've seen this a thousand times where me and my wife are just like, Ugh! and all of a sudden I go and pray for her and it's not nothing I'm doing, but God comes in and relieves me. And I'm just like, just free. Finally, I, self is gone. And I don't have to say anything. She comes upstairs. She goes, Hey, how are you doing? You know, it changes everything. It really does. And that's God. That's, wow. that, that's not me. So that's why the purpose of the program is to keep self deflated. And we do that through 10, 11 and 12 so that self doesn't reemerge. Cause when self reemerges, which it's impossible to not, I'll just tell you, but the longer I'm in here, the longer I get to stay and enjoy being connected to the power and a place of neutrality, safe and protected. And that's, you know, if anybody that's been in for sober has tasted that. So the question is, am I willing to die to self so that I can have that? I heard this great little saying, and this is, you know, anything placed in front of God, anything, my wife, um, whatever, anything placed in front of God today will render me hopeless and powerless. Absolutely. That's the truth. When I rely on something else that only God can fill. Because if I have a resentment, God hunger. If I have a disturbance, God hunger. If I'm having lust, God hunger. It's that simple. I, I'm trying to fill what only God can fill with something else. And I'm just promise you, you could have sex with women every single day and it will, it just leaves you more empty. So if it, if if you know the lust would have you, the lust always promises this beautiful. Oh, this will be nice. It's not true. It's a lie. It's not real. It never fulfills. It's so fleeting. It doesn't. It's not real. It's a lie. But that's how dangerous and insidious and poisonous lust is, because it always promises relief. It promises um, pleasure, and it's not real. It's a lie only god can give us those things
2: great answer just last question i have is you said something about you were going to leave the i think it was you talking yeah, and not your sponsor right. yeah. something about like leaving the room so like my question is is you're so passionate about the program and you have such you know validity towards god and the steps in 10 11 and 12. so first of all what was your thought process and second of all, what did you tell your brain in order to not because i have that sometimes
1: yeah um that's the insanity. See, I, there is insanity in this program. Um, I remember going on a trip to a little island called Shimia, which is a, an old military base. I was working and I, and we had all this work. We're doing all these negotiations. And at night I got up to get some cereal. They have a cafeteria and five TVs. And I, and I didn't know it. I turned on the TV and there was, um, I mean, they have like two channels that just straight up porn. I'm like, Oh geez. And I went past the next one and I finally turned I turned it off real quick. No temptation. Because I was, I always know when I travel I'm in danger. I turned that off, and I had nothing but a a, a a feeling of wanting to go back to my room and just be with God. And so I totally was fulfilled. I was free. I was flying back on the plane, and man, I'm just like God, you're so good, thank you. I mean, I wasn't even tempted. I get back here, I'm meeting somebody at a Starbucks coffee shop, and I let my I said to this, I let my guard down. I said who I made it. And every time I've said that more than once, I let my guard down. I walk into Starbucks and there was a woman right there. And I looked this way and I took the biggest old drink and she knew that I took a drink and she was wanting to be let and I was, boom, I was sick. I was drunk with one drink, one look, I was drunk. And I'm just telling you right now that in that moment, I'm thinking, oh, I, what am I doing in this program? <laughs> that's what I want. But that's the insanity of taking one drink is my entire thinking can change or, you know, but it all started somewhere with a resentment or some fear or something that I would, that I would see that and not recoil from it because I wasn't connected to God because I was like, oh, I'm good. And every time I think that who I made it or that, you know, I got this, man, it just bites me. And the one time I had looked something up and I had made a decision that, you know, I'm, I'm wanting to go back into my disease. And so I'm calling, I tried to call my sponsor. He didn't answer. So I call my sponsee to let him know I had about three or four at the time. Hey, you're going to need to find a new sponsor. I hadn't done anything, but I had in my, in my insanity, I didn't try and surrender because I was too sick. That's the deadly. I that's a deadly poison of this program is one drink. I can be sick and, and, on my way out. Now, that hasn't happened in a long time, but I called my sponsee and he, and he said to me, whoa, Dennis, he goes, did you go to God yet? Because that's what I always tell them. Did you go to God yet? And I said, no, I didn't. And it shocked me that I didn't. So I pulled my truck over. I just started into my prayers and boom, I was back like, what was I doing? So uh, there's no guarantee that tomorrow, if I let up, that I can get sick. And I can tell you, You know, some people go, well, you've got to, you know, I don't know. I know me. Like I took my daughter, she was 16, to a water park. I was there five hours and didn't take one drink. And I knew if I took, I mean, everywhere, women, hundreds. And I knew if I took one drink, I would be like, couldn't stop drinking. And my daughter would be like, dad, dad, dad. And I wouldn't be there. And I'd be like, Ah. But I was able to, we go up the stairs. She knows I'm a sexholic. I was able to, and I would pray, you know, because we're climbing these stairs, and I don't want to look down the stairs. Um, I didn't fight it. I did a lot of surrendering, but I know that I can't take a drink. No amount is okay. Because one drink can send me back. So I, I guess the question I always ask people, are you? right now, willing and ready to go the rest of your life without taking another drink? And as a sexaholic, the answer is no. But once I start connecting to God, I have to, you know, start saying, yes, I, that's what I want. I want to go so I can have the better things of life. And lust sometimes will come and offer something that's just like, who? nope. But, but I can't resist that. That's the thing. I can't, I can't, look away or, or resist. I have to take the brakes off and say, God, you got me or you don't. And God always does. If I'll go to him, pass.
2: Great answer. My other question, sorry, I have a lot of questions is step two coming to believe where does hell fit into this? If God is all loving and caring, how, how do you uh, put that into your uh, understanding? Like, where does
1: health up? health come or hell,
2: hell? H-E-L-L.
1: Oh man, that's a tough one. I'll, I'll just tell you this.
2: Like, do you have any fear like of death, et cetera? If so, how does that fit with step two?
1: Yeah. And I normally don't bring faith tradition into these meetings, but I will, because you're asking it. Here's the deal. I, I followed God for years, so I didn't go to hell. (laughs) Right. I mean, that's, and, but I always knew in deep in my heart that God loved me. The step two inventory out of the step into action is beautiful because what I realize is a lot of my early higher powers, um, you know, if I did well, I got praised. If not, I got shunned. Or, so love was conditional. That out of step into action. Um, that's one thing I do use, even though I use the big book because I love, I've seen guys cry into their big books when they realize they'll, they'll write, you know, what do you choose to believe about God today? Well, that God won't punish, won't punish me just because and I'm like, oh, wait a minute, stop. Anything that's conditional, I cross off. I want you to read that again. God won't punish me. Now see, so now we're getting into faith tradition. I believe God loves me. Every time I acted out, God was right there with me. He loves me. And all he's just waiting for me to come and connect with him. You know, so that's the whole thing. I, I I can't even comprehend his love. And that's what I, when I when I say about this place of neutrality, I can just tell somebody it's there and promise them that when they get there, it's beautiful, but it's not something can, that can be described or intellectually understood. It has to be experienced and it can only be experienced by following the steps, working them exactly as they are in the big book. And I'll tell you, when we did that big book unveiled series with David G., That's when it happened for me. We got the whole series. If anybody wants it, anybody can have it. Where we went through the entire big book and man, that man opened up for me um, this 10 and 11 in a way that I'd never, I I knew it, you know, but that's why we with Shim and Daniel and Yitz, we are doing this best speaker recording thing. And so we're just always doing something to stay connected and to hear more because recovery is my life. So I don't know. It doesn't mean mean that I can't be sick tomorrow and leave this program and you never see me again. You know, for, for six months, I promise you this, everybody, it's the big joke in our fellowship at my home here. I had $10,000 in my passport and I've always, I was always threatened. Well, I'm going to fly to Thailand and live out my days there. That was my, that was my big, you know, and now there, I now I know I didn't know it, but now I know there's nothing there. There's nothing there. There's just a lot of pain and suffering. Lust never brings, never brings nothing. It doesn't. It just. And the end stages of sexaholism are so horrible that some may have to go there to get free. Like one of the old timers said. If there's still fun left in the bottle, that sexaholic's going to drink. thats I don't know if that's true. I hope it's not because you see these young guys and I think, God, I wish if they can get to a place of neutrality connected to God, man, their lives will be so different. But the, the problem is, is it relieves the pain. So now when you're asking me not to act out or asking them to not act out. You're just asking me to stay in pain all the time. That's just, that's sober. That's why sober's not well, because you're asking somebody to just be in pain. Like they come in from the desert with their cantina lust. You shoot a bunch of holes in it, it drips out and you go, let's go walk in the desert. And they're like, there's no way. I, I, I just don't see that. Well, that's the hard part is because once you get them sober, you got to get them. They got to keep working those steps. Or like it says, if they don't do their four step, It'll have little permanent effect. They won't stay sober. They'll suffer horribly bad. They'll just not act out, and that's a horrible way to live. God, I just can't. But lust, lust is a lie. It's a lie. It's not real. And if that's the sooner that we can believe that, the sooner that we can start turning to God every time we're tempted. And if we'll turn to God every time we're tempted to do to think something or to visually see something, man, that those temptations get further and further away. They really do. It starts breaking that obsession. But if I take the drink, the obsession starts coming the other way where it's just like, you know, eating at me. And, man, I'm constantly walking around. I'm running down one aisle of the store to get around to see this lady. It's just craziness. I'm an addict, you know that's why it was scary when I just got out of the surgery that I took those pain pills. I was really scared about that. And sure enough, I started feeling the effects of them removing the pain, but I also started feeling the effects of the high. And man, I just, I told my wife, Nope, I, you take them. Cause I don't want those. Cause they're deadly. And I didn't want to run a meeting. I was refused to run my Monday, Thursday meeting if I had taken any narcotics cause I don't think in that state I can be connected to God. And I want to be connected to God. There's no better there's no better place than that.
6: Powerful. Good evening, good evening, everyone. My name is I'm a sexaholic. And my, uh, my question, question to you is it sounds like you have um, a lot of childhood trauma. My question to you is um which part of the recovery did you um, did you go for help for the beginning? Did you wait a little till you got sober, like once you went through the steps? At which mm-hmm. point did you um like work, work on that?
1: Yeah, that's a good Well, here's the deal. I see guys coming in, young guys coming in, going to the same counselor. And man, within like a year or two, they're just like, they have what I want through that counseling where they're crying. They can cry now. They can, oh, but I can just see it in their shares. I'm like, man, the truth is, is every time my counselor's been working with me for almost seven years, every time we even... And I already know what happened. So I'm always like, oh, that's no big deal. Let's just jump in. And he'll just open the door and ask me some questions. And I can't even remember. But I get like, I start coming apart. Well, what's funny is just, it's not funny. It's kind of scary. Is not this week, but after next week in the first part of April, we're going to actually start delving into my childhood trauma, but very slowly. You know, and and along the way, every time I've wanted to do it my way, like they have their survivor week down in Arizona. Well, I'm just going to pay and go down. there, And it's like, oh, God, please Dennis, don't do that because you have no idea. He knows the depth of my trauma. I don't. To me, it's like, well, it's not that big a deal. But I don't understand all of that. So I'm, I'm an infant at what you're asking. Um, and I don't and I have a lot of fear that once we open that door and we start getting down in there. You know, the whole reason I acted out and medicated was there may be some pain there, and I don't do well with pain, but I'm going to trust the process and trust God that there's supposed to be some healing in that. And after seven years, I can finally start crying. Like maybe a few months ago, I actually cried in front of my counselor and my wife, and it was over something. But see, I don't understand it all because I don't. Like if I start to cry, it's just, it's just off. And, I, and I'm like, oh no, I want to cry, but I can't. And he said, well, I want you to call me, Dennis, if you're having this, you know, going through this thing. And I said, well, only if I can, only if I can pay you, I'll call you. Said, God, man, I've been working with you so long. If you call me for five or 10 minutes or 15, I, I, Dennis, I, I don't care. He goes, I care about you. He goes, man, I love you. And to think that he would do that. And I'm here with my wife. I never cry. I started crying. Like this man would like, you know, I I know he loves me. He says that. But I pay him for his services. So if he's willing to answer the phone, I'm wanting to pay him for it. But he's like, no, I love you. And I guess something about that that I don't understand yet caused me to burst into tears that I felt like a little kid or something. I don't even understand it. That he would just do that for me. I don't get it. So I'm still very wounded man. But I guess that's the only thing I can say about that. That was the first time he's ever seen me cry too. And I was shocked. I was just like embarrassed. I was covering my face. I, it wasn't something that I could control. So mean, you see these other guys, they go to treatment. And they're they can cry openly, like just like profusely sobbing. And I hear about this. I thought, man, I want that. I don't have that, not yet. It's starting to come because now me and my wife will watch a show, and I can feel the tears. They'll come up, and so that's that's. I'm still really an infant on that, and I would ex, I would enjoy any ESH people have, but my counselor is very very careful with me. You know, because sometimes like if I get really sick, you know, my best thinking is, is I'm going to go off into the woods. And and that was my I, one day I called my sponsor because my wife, what are you doing? I, I, I had my little coffee thermos and I was going to go off into the woods. It was 10 degrees outside and I wasn't going to come back until God let me cry. And so I was supposed to be going to work. And I called my sponsor and he goes, what's what are you doing, Dennis? I said, I'm going to go off into the woods. I'm going to hike miles. Until God, because I didn't want to do it for anybody until God lets me cry. And he goes, Dennis, that's batshit crazy. I want you to go to work. Now, see, when my sponsor tells me that, I don't have a choice. Everything inside me wants to go, no, I'm going to walk off into the woods. He said, you probably would have died, but I do what my sponsor, you know, in those cases, he doesn't tell me th- decisions to make and all that. I rely upon God. But in those cases, if I'm that sick and he tells me, no, I want you to go to work, or yeah, then I just do what he says. Which looking back now, I'm glad <laughs> so'm I'm, I'm still a sick guy Pass. I don't know if that that's embarrassing for me to tell you that, but that's the truth. Maybe someday I can share on that in a way that there's a lot of healing there. I hope so.
4: I was wondering uh, about uh, you know resentments or fears that crop up during the day. I, I, I know in the fourth step you know we we uh, you know what I, what I did was write out four columns and pray the prayer. Yep. What, what kind of work do you do, you know, once you've done the four steps and like on a daily basis as resentments crop up, do you still do those four columns and the prayer work? Do you just share just a prayer like that? that that's one question. I'll ask the other question.
1: Next yeah, that's a great question. It kind of depends on the level of the resentment. It really does, because sometimes just praying and asking for God to remove it. Um, I still if I pray and ask God to remove it and then talk to somebody about it and then resolutely turn my thoughts to someone I can help, but I'm not out of it, then I do all, you know, God help me to realize that this person is spiritually sick, just like me. And God help me to show and I pause and wait for God, like, yeah, they really are sick. God help me to show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience. I would cheerfully grant a sick friend in the hospital. And I wait and I visualize them. Yeah, would this really be, you know, God. I pray for that person everything I would want for myself. I pray that you would give them abundant health, prosperity, and happiness, and bless them with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self control. And wherever they're at right now, God, I pray that you have protection for that person. I pray for serenity for them. And I pray your power and presence will enter their heart so Thy will be done all the days of their life. And when I do that prayer, man, I just feel love and compassion for them. Never to be brought up or charged against whatever it is. It's gone. I let it go. And that's something that God does. So depending on the disturbance, sometimes I do have to write them out though. I have to write who it is, what they did. And those those that I, when I do those, I always talk to my sponsor about those because he helps me with those that I'm just hanging on to. Um, Because sometimes I just don't want to let it go but it's killing me. And when i really get scared is when I just don't want to let it go. And the next thing I know, I'm, I'm, I'm being tempted. Now I'm starting to see things like in a show, but I would never see that or walk in a grocery store and be totally fine. Now I'm starting to notice stuff. I'm like, Ooh, I'm really sick. If I'm noticing a figure of a woman, then I'm really sick and I need to get back. I need to find out and ask myself, Dennis, where's your resentment? Or what's the fear? What's going on here? Because I I I'm I, I'm I'm usually in a place of place of neutrality, safe and protected. So something, if I get to a point where I notice that, then I'm going to be tempted by that. I'm it's dangerous for me. Not not I don't know. What's scary is is I could take a drink, and if I take a drink, I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man, and I I, I don't want to go. I don't want to go back there because it took me six years to get or five and a half. To get to a place where um, I'm not taking those drinks anymore, but that took a lot of surrender and a lot of understanding of doing the nightly inventories and, and practicing this over and over and over. Because you know my disease, if I if I were to like ponder it, yeah, I, I, I but the scary thing is I see guys come in this program, they'll be like sober for a year or two. Then they go back out and they're doing stuff that they weren't doing when they came in. It just like slides forward. And it's scary because I've been out almost seven years now. I don't know what I will be doing. And when I left the depravity of the stuff that I was doing and seeing and was so sickening, I have no idea what I'd be doing now. It'd be scary. I don't want to find that out.